Good morning, everybody. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Peter. I'm one of the pastors in training here at Christ Church. Um, before we begin, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, um, we thank you for this day that you've blessed us with. We thank that we can come together and hear you speak from your word. We ask for those of us who feel rushed coming in, who feel uh, like we have cold hearts, we ask that you would warm them up through your spirit, um, tenderize our hearts to the truth that you have, and we ask that you would help us in our pursuit of the good life, the life that you created us for. We ask this all in your name. Amen. Well, hopefully you've had a wiser month of January as we've studied the book of Proverbs, and I'm sure you've discovered this weird paradoxical reality that God's wisdom is all around us, but somehow it's really hard to act upon. Maybe you found yourself in difficult situations this month where godly wisdom doesn't really feel like wisdom. I mean, sometimes we wonder if choosing God's wisdom in our life is really worth it. A few years ago, a friend of mine was in a really difficult position where he had to decide that, answer that question, is godly wisdom worth it? A few years ago, my friend Michael decided he wanted to go to Michigan State University, a very highly respected state school in the U.S. And unlike tuition costs here, the cost of tuition in the U.S. kind of varies depending on which university you want to go to, which degree you want. So depending on the degree and whether or not you have scholarships, Michigan State University's average cost is 80,000 U.S. dollars. As a potential student, you have a couple of options. You can hope that your family's really well off. You can try and apply as many grants and scholarships or take out a lot of student loans. And none of these were an option for my friend Michael. So he decided to enter into the ROTC program, which stands for the Reserve Officer Training Corporation. And this ROTC program is a partnership program with the US military, which offers to pay your entire university bill on the basis that you train while you study and that you serve in the military for two years after your time in university. Now, for many like my friend, this is a really easy choice. I mean, free schooling plus two years experience leading as an officer, I mean, that's easy. That's an easy uh, decision. It sounds perfect. And so Michael attended Michigan State University. He excelled in school, did well in his training, and experienced the full university life as MSU is known for being quite a large party school. Everything was going straight forward. It was smooth until his final year. He has what he calls a powerful encounter with God, and he rededicated his life to the Lord. And so he became even more focused, and he stopped partying entirely. But in his last semester, he had to take an exit interview with an ROTC officer to make sure that his grades were at an acceptable level and that he was holding up his side of the conduct agreement. Now, part of that conduct agreement was absolutely no drugs of any kind, even street drugs like marijuana. Like the vast majority of MSU students, marijuana is just part of university life, and Michael had smoked in the past four years. But now he found himself sitting in a room in front of a conduct officer who was checking off boxes that would guarantee his place as an officer in the military and full payment for four years of university. That's $80,000. Now, the ROTC is not naive, 
and even acknowledges that statistically 98% of officers lie at this part of the conduct agreement. But for the sake of formality, the question needed to be answered. And so Michael was put in a dilemma. Having not smoked in a very long time and it being just a minor aspect of his university life, I mean, it was just a small lie. It's not a large deal. But at the same time, not wanting to lie and disrespect the military and having recently rededicated his life to the Lord, he felt that he should tell the truth. What would you do? I mean, 98% of people lie. It's just one box for $80,000. What's the wise thing to do? If he came to you, what, what advice would you give him? My friend sat there, and he looked the officer in the eyes, and he told him that, yes, he did smoke marijuana during the past four years while the military was paying for his education. But in that past year, he had completely turned his life around. He shared his testimony. And the officer, a little bit off guard, caught off guard, looked him in the eyes and told him that on behalf of the military, he was so glad to hear how my friend had changed his life. But due to the circumstances, the ROTC program would be canceling his future role in the military and he would be required to pay for his degree with no help. He was disqualified. And there wasn't any going back. It's not like he was two years into his degree. This was his final semester. So not having applied to any scholarships, thinking that the program would pay for all of his degree, he left that day with $80,000 of debt. What do you think? Was that the wise choice? I mean, was it really the wise choice? Even more than that, was it worth it? $80,000 for being honest. Well, as we've looked through the book of Proverbs, we've considered what it means to live the good life. And Proverbs defines that good life as a life that is lived knowing that you were created by God to live in his creation for him. What the Bible calls the fear of the Lord, relating to the creator in a way that harmonizes with creation. An attitude and a realization that God is alive and active in each one of our lives. Now, while many of us would agree with that on a hypothetical level, that the good life is a godly life, and that wisdom is living your whole life in relationship to God, it doesn't always feel like the good life. Proverbs' invitation to the good life doesn't always seem so desirable or very wise. I mean, we would far prefer to live our lives and seek our own desires and our own wisdom to live a life focused on ourselves. The good life of Proverbs doesn't really seem worth it. And if I'm being honest, if I was in Michael's position, I probably would have just swept that little lie under the rug and taken fully paid tuition. But Proverbs keeps begging us to realize that the godly life is worth it. That what Michael did is worth it. Take a look at verses 10 and 11. It says, Choose my instruction instead of silver. Knowledge rather than choice gold, for wisdom is more precious than rubies, and nothing you can desire can compare with her. And so in, the, in our passage this morning, the writer of Proverbs personifies wisdom as a woman who continues to plead with us that her way is worth it, that her knowledge and instruction are better than anything that you can desire. Well, let's see if we actually agree. 
let's look at why wisdom claims to matter. Well, first, wisdom claims to be the foundation for social order. If you read verses 12 to 16 with me, it says, I, wisdom, dwell together with prudence. I possess knowledge and discretion. To fear the Lord is to hate evil. And I hate pride and arrogance, evil behavior and perverse speech. Counsel and sound judgment are mine. I have insight. I have power. By me, kings reign and rulers issue decrees that are just. By me, princes govern and nobles, all who rule the earth. Well, as we look around our world today, we might be wondering, well, where are those kings and rulers and princes who govern with counsel and sound judgment that issue decrees that are actually just? And in fact, by Proverbs logic, it seems that there are very few people, especially leaders, who seem to fear the Lord. So we look around the world, we see a lot of pride, arrogance, evil behavior, and perverse speech. It's not difficult to connect the dots that those leaders probably won't govern with counsel, sound judgment, or issue decrees that are just. Now, if godly wisdom, that is, fearing the Lord, is the foundation for social order, that means that the humility that comes through fearing the Lord and the sense of the sacredness of creation and humanity is what gives people the understanding to govern well. Now, while we would all agree that human dignity and humility are defining features of good leaders, we don't really always believe that in our hearts. I mean, if push comes to shove, people exist for our betterment. Of course it's wise to slide a few white lies and create a society where everyone's looking out for themselves, isn't it? Well, in 2013, Netflix came out with a show called House of Cards, a very successful political drama web series, but the story of a U.S. congressman who set his heart on becoming the president of the United States. Now, this show is often criticized for being overly grotesque and over-dramatizing the corruption and evil in the U.S. government. Maybe. Um, while this may be true, throughout the series, you as the audience begin to find yourself thinking just like Frank Underwood, the explicitly corrupt, prideful, arrogant, perverse congressman played by Kevin Spacey. And what makes the show so relatable and unique is Kevin Spacey's jarringly personal direct asides, what directors and actors call breaking the fourth wall. You see, he stops in the middle of the scene in the situation. He looks directly into the camera to you, the audience, and he explains his reasoning by offering his own wisdom. Now, by the end of the scene, you as the audience completely agree that what he did had to be done. And the brilliance of this show is that it simply exposes how deeply flawed our own wisdom is. Deep down, we can be convinced that a corrupt politician like Frank Underwood may in fact be more like ourselves than we think. Proverbs understands that in leading with authority, whether it be countries or companies or families, there's a great temptation to lead with pride and arrogance and perverse speech. But leading that way doesn't provide for social flourishing. Social flourishing will always have humility and the concern for the other built into it. Those who look wise, whether it be King David or Nelson Mandela or a particular CEO or a pastor or a father, are humble leaders that look out for the other. 
a community of pride that looks out for itself, will not flourish. But godly wisdom, tempered by the fear of the Lord, is the foundation for that flourishing of the social order. By this wisdom, not only will kings reign and princes govern, but also by this wisdom, doctors lead good teams, teachers raise up good students, men and women build good families, and students become good leaders. Wisdom matters because it's the foundation of the social order. It's the way the world ought to be. Second, wisdom matters because it's built into creation. Would you read verses 22 to 31 with me? Sorry, in verse 22, it says, The Lord brought me forth as the first of his works before his deeds of old. I was formed long ages ago at the very beginning when the world came to be. When there were no watery depths, I was given birth. When there were no springs overflowing with water, before the mountains were settled in place, before the hills, I was given birth. Before he made the world of its fields or any of the dust of the earth, I was there when he set the heavens in place, when he marked out the horizon on the face of the deep, when he established the clouds above and fixed securely the fountains of the deep, when he gave the sea its boundary so that the waters not overstep his command, and when he marked out the foundations of the earth. Then I was constantly at his side. I was filled with delight day after day, rejoicing always in his presence, rejoicing in his whole world, and delighting in the human race. So, wisdom is being described is described as being at the beginning of creation, that it's built into the very fabric of how the world was created to be. Now, the writer of Proverbs gives this very detailed, vivid imagery of mountains being formed in the sea and hills and fields and clouds. It's everywhere. And that's different from what we think. I think from time to time we think of godly wisdom as this thing that applies to specific areas of our life or maybe just relationships. But Proverbs 8 suggests that wisdom is required to understand how the world actually functions. In fact, in the original language in Hebrew, this word wisdom is called hokmah. And in the Old Testament, when the people of God were commanded to construct a tabernacle and to decorate it using their understanding of architecture, it interestingly says, and they hoked mod the temple. That is, they built the temple. Or another way of saying it, they wisdomed the temple. Because after all, we're all interacting with God's creation. As an example, let's think about architecture or city planning. The famous city planner and architect Jane Jacobs wrote The Death and Life of Great American Cities, wherein she looks at the things that we take for granted every single day and explains why and how they create flourishing societies. If you, if you ever picked up the book, be prepared to read for pages upon pages on theories why sidewalks, or what you call pavement, many of you call pavement, is so important to human sociology and social space. Because at the heart of the matter, architecture and city planning has to do with what you think it means to be human. While Jacobs and many others may not use the term the fear of the Lord, they know that a flourishing city 
depends on understanding how humans are wired and how they're wired to interact with the material world. Because wisdom is built into the fabric of creation. It's why I hear many of you who love Liverpool so dearly complaining about the poorly thought out, cheaply constructed student accommodation popping up everywhere. I mean, the bricks on the side of the newly built accommodation across from the Philharmonic pub are falling off onto the pavements, and people are ashamed because maybe it's not wise for the developer to build only what makes him rich while not giving any thought to the whole community. And this sort of thinking can be translated into every area of life, whether you're a doctor, a financial planner, a full-time parent, a student, a business owner. What you do during your normal day requires wisdom. So slow down and understand that what you're doing is valuable because you're following along with the wisdom that's built into the fabric of life. And this is also why people who aren't Christians still follow some of the wisdom that Proverbs teaches. You don't need to be a Christian to have some degree of wisdom because we're all exploring, dealing with, and creating from God's good creation. There are these visible patterns we experience that show us how the world works, and wisdom is out there for the taking. So wisdom matters because it's built into the framework of creation. It was the first ingredient in the recipe. But third, wisdom matters because it bears fruit and a rich inheritance. Let's look at verses 19 to 21. Starting in verse 19, it says, My fruit is better than fine gold. What I yield surpasses choice silver. I walk in the way of righteousness along the paths of justice, bestowing a rich inheritance on those who love me and making their treasuries full. Well, in this passage, wisdom promises fruit that's better than gold and silver and a rich inheritance and full treasuries for those who love her. In this, there's a sense in which wisdom can be grown and accumulated over time. The writer is contrasting the future reward of wisdom with the immediate dull satisfaction of fine gold and choice silver. Because wisdom is concerned with the long-term growth and inheritance. The rewards of wisdom might not seem immediately apparent, but it's worth it. And we, and we know this. Like, let's take some everyday examples, such as the wisdom of eating healthy or exercising, or the wisdom of financial planning and budgeting, or the wisdom of studying and productivity. We all want good, healthy lives where we don't find ourselves in loads of death, of debt, sorry, um, or stressed out by procrastination. So we act wisely so that later in life, whether that be next week or in 20 years, we receive a rich inheritance and have the fruit of wisdom. I know it's very difficult to pass up the chocolate bar or to get on the treadmill when you've had a long day. It's hard to deny yourself the next phone upgrade or stay in for the night to prepare for your exam. But we all know it's worth it, don't we? This is true of our daily lives and our circumstances, but it's also true at a grander level. What you do with your entire life, what you do with your relationships, has a huge potential, particularly as Christians. 
you have your entire life to make wise decisions. The Bible even speaks metaphorically in 1 Corinthians of a day when all of our work will be consumed by fire and everything that will be left will be purified gold, a reward, greater value than any earthly riches, and that's all we're going to have left. Wisdom promises that fruit, that her fruit is better, that there will be a rich inheritance for those who love her. That means that wisdom is worth it. Not just in the big picture, the tricky situation, but in the everyday ordinariness of life. Because the truth is, we're always either becoming more wise or more foolish. The small decisions that you make are either cultivating a wise life or a foolish life. If the wise life promises good fruit and a rich inheritance, we ought to think about how we are acting in the small decisions of our life because it sets a pattern for when we have to make the large decisions. Wisdom matters because it promises an internal inheritance, something truly worth working for. So I've asked the question, is wisdom really worth it, even when it doesn't seem like it? Proverbs 8 says that the wise, godly life is worth it because it's the foundation for the social order, it's built into creation, and it bears a life of fruit and a rich inheritance. But that's not enough to actually make us wise, is it? I mean, you probably already knew a lot of these incentives to live a wise life. I mean, who are we kidding? We know all this, and yet we don't eat like we should. We don't exercise like we should. We still spend beyond our income. We speak arrogantly and think too highly of ourselves. We still use people for our gain. So while these incentives are helpful in making us want the good life, they don't bring us to actually living completely wise lives. To a certain degree, our non-Christian friends and family still enjoy these incentives. They still do things that seem like godly wisdom, but they're still aimed at a good life for themselves. And if all we have are these incentives, we will be too. And I think it's because we still tend to think of wisdom as a thing. That wisdom is a sort of a scientific formula for getting a good life. That life's this giant machine, and if we put in the right codes, if we make the right decisions, we ought to get a good life. But if we take a step back and look at Proverbs 8, we see that wisdom is relational. Proverbs 8 personifies wisdom as a woman that we relate to, not as a whole list of cause and effects. Wisdom is personal and relational. The only way our hearts are going to change from being cold, arrogant, self-seeking, and short-term minded is through personal interaction. Now, I'm sorry if I ruffle a few feathers, but I do have a confession to make. I really, really am not a fan of musicals. To put it gently, I highly dislike musicals because I feel that their exuberance of emotions and disconnectedness with reality make it difficult to connect with on any realistic level. So if you love musicals, no hard feelings, just a preference. But in fact, I've tried a few times to get my head around why people enjoy musicals. I've forced myself to sit down and watch a couple, and I still don't particularly want to watch them until 
I married my wife, Emily. Emily was raised on musicals, and it's in her blood. She's been to Broadway. She has a passion for the colors, the music, the acting. She loves them. Now, having spent much of my time with Emily and seeing her love for them and her appreciation, my cold, dark heart has begun to warm up a bit. And I feel like I can understand why certain aspects of musicals are appealing, finally. Because she loves them and I love her, I found myself much more opening to listening to the musicals. Similarly, godly wisdom is hard to desire. We oftentimes don't think it's worth we don't think it's worth it. But that's because we're going about it in the wrong way. We need to understand how personal wisdom is. Notice the way that wisdom is presented in verses 1 to 5, starting in verse 1. It says, Does not wisdom call out? Does not understanding raise her voice? At the highest point along the way, where the paths meet, she takes her stand. Beside the gate leading into the city, at the entrance, she cries aloud. To you, O people, I call out. I raise my voice to all humanity. You who are simple gain prudence. You who are foolish set your hearts on it. Wisdom is personified as a woman by the writer of Proverbs to get us to think about wisdom in a relational category. Wisdom is not hidden facts or obscure truths or planning schemes. But godly wisdom is the simple realization that God is your creator And he wants to walk with you through your life. That's why the writer uses an image of a woman to personify wisdom. The way we become wise is by relating. The fear of the Lord is essentially a relationship. Wisdom, then, is the good news that God wants to walk through his world with us. This is how wisdom changes us into wise people. When we see who it is that we are walking through life with, it suddenly becomes much easier to live a life that harmonizes with God's creation. And suddenly, wisdom matters deeply to you. In your everyday circumstances, you will have to make decisions with a head full of competing desires and wisdoms. But listen to the one who made you and is walking through your life with you. It's worth it. Some of you may think this sounds too utopian, too easy. The right choice isn't always easy. It wasn't easy for Michael to choose honesty, to give up his free education. And I agree, things aren't always straightforward. In fact, they usually aren't straightforward. But what I am saying and what this passage suggests is wisdom itself, knowing how to make decisions, decisions is not complex or hidden. It's out in the open. Take a look at the first couple of verses again. Does not wisdom call out? Does not understanding raise her voice at the highest point along the way where the paths meet beside the city gate? Now, if you've ever walked down Bold Street here in town in the middle of a day, especially on a weekend, I'm sure you've come across this. The street is closed, so you kind of walk with the crowd in the middle of the street. And then suddenly you see a clipboard appear above the line of heads. And it's as if it's Moses' staff and all the people split like the Red Sea. Now, while these people aren't necessarily the wisdom that is talked about in this passage, it's a very good picture of what wisdom is like. It's not hidden, but exposed. In fact, calling out to everyone in the most public of places. We notice these people walking around all the time asking for a moment of our time, but like everyone else, 
We put up our phones. We kind of look down, walk around the edge, make sure we don't have to talk. But you don't need to go far to find wisdom. She raises her voice at the city gate at the highest point. I'm sure there's a lot of you here today who just still don't buy it. (laughs) Wisdom seems far off and distant. I think that's because we become numb to hear her voice in our everyday lives that when a big crisis comes, we honestly can't hear her. Every day, you're either becoming wise or foolish, becoming sensitive and aware to wisdom, or more numb and deaf to her. When I talk with friends who feel this way, who can't seem to find wisdom, we just sit down and talk it through, I ask questions to understand the situation, ask questions about what they think is the wise decision, ask questions about what would glorify God, and by the end of the conversation, they know which decisions are wise and which are foolish, without any sort of prompting on my part, because it's not that complex or hidden. It's just oftentimes not the choice we would have picked with our own wisdom. But this godly wisdom, living your entire life in relation to God, is worth it. It's not terribly hard to find a way to do it, but it's very difficult to desire it. Even Solomon, who wrote the majority of this book, who is considered to be the wisest man in all of Israel, failed to be king and falls into sin in the second half of his life. Living a wise life is very hard. So there's a danger that while this is encouraging and convicting, it leaves us with this impossible situation of perfectly relating to God and his creation through wisdom. But while the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament gives us a picture of true wisdom, the New Testament gives us the reality of wisdom. The New Testament goes even further. God helps us by becoming a man who perfectly embodies wisdom so we can personally relate to him. In 1 Corinthians, Apostle Paul writes, Christ is the power and wisdom of God. And again in Colossians, my goal is that they may be encouraged in heart, united in love, so that they may have full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Jesus Christ comes down to show us what the truly wise life is, perfectly relating to humanity, perfectly relating to creation, and perfectly relating to his heavenly Father. He came to die for our sinfulness and foolishness so we might be joined to him and walk with him. So as Christians, we know that we can relate to God in an even more fundamental way than the original readers of Proverbs. Jesus, the very wisdom of God, walks through this life with us, opening up the world to us. So then Christianity is entering into a life of wisdom because every moment, every moment of your life, you have Jesus who promises to be with you. The good life is the godly life. And Jesus has come down to save us to a life that loves fears, trusts, and honors God. The length he went to save us proves that this good life is worth it. So, this year, this month, even today, when we leave, we will rub up against other people in difficult situations, and you will be tempted to act upon your own wisdom, which is most likely going to be the easiest 
and most straightforward route to your vision of the good life. But if you listen, you will also hear godly wisdom leading you on a potentially different path. On behalf of the pastors this morning, I'm asking you choose that one. On a practical level, get in the habit of asking yourself in those situations, what is Jesus teaching me in this situation? And what is Jesus calling me to in this situation? As Christians, we know that God's wisdom is everywhere. It's built into the fabric of the universe, standing at the street corners calling to us. But even more, as Christians, Jesus walks through this life with us, opening up the world to us. So students, parents, professionals, listen to the true wisdom that is built into the fabric of the universe. And even more than that, listen to your Savior who is walking right next to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you do not leave us in our own sinfulness and foolishness, but you come down to us to show us the good life. We ask that our hearts would be sensitive and aware to your wisdom. We ask that um, where we have fallen into the patterns of foolishness, you might waken us up to your life of wisdom. We desperately want to live good lives, so you help us to see that the good life is a godly life. We ask this all in your name. Amen. Well, one of the things we like to do here at Christchurch now and again, particularly, I guess, because we're talking about wisdom, is give a chance for people to ask questions or make comments or seek clarity on something that's been said. So, Peter, why don't you come up and join me? Uh, now is your moment that if you want to stick a hand in the air, you can ask a question or make a comment or want to find out something more. If no one else wants to go first, I'm happy to go. No, Chris is happy. Good. Great. Chris, fire one. So in case people didn't hear, the question is, we're so proud sometimes, we do want to be wise, but so other people will go, oh, what a wise person. Is that a problem, or you know, the end result is you're wise? Does that matter? Uh, I think it does matter, um, but I do think it is important to help the first point about it's the foundation for social ordering. So there's a sense in which wisdom is to be desired for other people to create a life. So there is this weird complexity between pride and looking out for other people with wisdom. Um, I think the way to combat that is, I know that me personally, I, I go throughout the day and I can probably name off how many unwise decisions I make. Um, and so I think in the Bible there's this continual coming back to this concept we've been talking about, this fear of the Lord, and understanding the way in which I actually don't harmonize with creation. And if you get under that, I think you're able to see um, wisdom for what it is, if that makes sense. So it's always coming back to the fear of the Lord um, in a loving way. If that's the best I can. I think, I think it's probably as well, you will, so that we've got some very arrogant leaders in the world at the moment, don't we? Um, and, but they occasionally land on right decisions because wisdom is built into the creation's order. I think what we learn from that, though, is you're not going to be consistently wise if you're arrogant. Um, and that's where the relational thing comes in, doesn't it? So you have to relate to God rightly to really get to wisdom. So... In answer to your question, you might get a few things right on that path, but in the end, you're going to come a cropper because arrogance will not lead you to wisdom in the end. That's a great question. Thank you, Chris. Pete, yeah. 
That's a really good point. In case you didn't hear, what Pete was saying was, actually, it is a deep form of wisdom to be able to admit your mistakes, isn't it? And that's not a form of wisdom you're ever going to practice if you're arrogant and you really care what people think about you. So that's really helpful, and just the example there of hearing speakers doing that to actually help people much more than them standing up and proclaiming their so-called wisdom. It's much more helpful when they admitted their mistakes. Yeah. Yeah. So, excellent question. Wisdom isn't black and white. Even in the example we've just had, sometimes really wise to admit your weaknesses, sometimes very foolish. How, how do you work it out? Is that really your question in the non-black and white? Yeah. yeah. So helpfully, um, and somewhat ironically, Proverbs, after chapter 9 to the end, gives you sort of black and white, this is wisdom. But if you actually read through it, there seems to be actually, surprisingly, some contradictions. Like you're saying it is wise to expose my weakness, but sometimes it's not. I think that gets back to the aspect of the relational aspect of Proverbs. The Proverbs meant to really is a chamber of learning, if that makes sense, in which you need to ask really hard questions. Um, and also, a lot of times, um, that last point about wisdom's out in the public sphere, it's not that difficult to find at least a range of wise decisions um, if you will take the time to listen and ask questions such as, what is Jesus teaching me this moment? Um, what is um, Jesus calling me to? And even when you have multiple um, what you think are wise choices, if you really pray through those things, I mean, you're allowed to trust in God that you can make a leap of faith in some aspect and say, I think this is wise and I'm going to go forward with it. Yeah. Thanks for pointing out. I think it was a really helpful point, Peter, that wisdom is, off at, wisdom is calling in the streets. And your illustration at the beginning was very helpful in that in some ways that was an incredibly hard decision to work out what to do but actually put the fear of the Lord in the center of the right thing to do is very self-evident, even though it's incredibly difficult, and that's often what wisdom is like. It becomes clear when you get the central piece of the puzzle in the place. It doesn't mean it becomes the easiest, most straightforward answer, but the right thing to do that honors God becomes clear. Um, often, not always. It's the nature of wisdom. Uh, Robert, then Brian, yeah. It's a really good point. Elsewhere in the Bible, it says, ask for wisdom. If you're worried about not having it, great. Thank you very much. Brian. Yeah. So the question really is, is wisdom like something you cultivate and you get it? Or is it like, well, this is actually just what Rob's been saying, something God gives you and so you have it. So is it a revelation or is it a practice? Uh, I think the safe answer is both. Um, <laughs> um, I think there are times, especially when people come to you asking, I really don't know, and they don't have the sort of cultivate, cultivation of a wise life, and you sit down with them, and it does seem like it's almost a revelation that comes down. But I think that as you live a life as Christians asking these constant questions, that revelation becomes more evident um, because it is kind of on the street corners, in a sense, and built into it. Um, so I think it's both. There is a sense in which the, the question, I guess, everything, if, if wisdom is built into the creation of everything, there's not the distinction of like a revelation in practice if everything is tied together. And if, in fact, everything is a revelation. God's creation is a revelation trying to teach us. And there are times when it speaks more explicitly than implicitly. But the way you hear that explicit voice is by cultivating a life of wisdom. It's helpful. I think it's, it's where, we said this last week, Proverbs, Job, Ecclesiastes are three wisdom books of the Bible and they go together. And Proverbs has the view, has very much sort of you cultivate it view, doesn't it? If you read the book of Job... At the end of that book, Job gives wisdom by this amazing encounter revelation of God. And the wisdom literature gives us that whole picture to say it's, it's all of the above. Um, it's, so I think you're right to say both.
Uh, can I ask one to you? Yeah. Um, this is more an application one. So you are sort of semi-new to our culture. You've been here a year and a half, um, and you've come from another culture. Where do you think in our culture, perhaps our church culture, are we in the habit of ignoring wisdom? So what are some specific things that you might look at us now? I'm giving you permission to say you're a very polite person. You never, you never volunteer this, so that's fine. I'm giving you permission. Where do you think we might be in patterns of living otherwise than if God is God and it's his world? What do you think? Hmm. Thanks. Um, maybe I can think about it. You come to second service and I'll tell you. <laughs> Let me think about it, I guess. Um, yeah, I can't. Sorry, I can't come up with one right now that stands out particularly. Um, I know there's lots of bits and pieces. Um, so, all right. Um, <laughs> have a go. Go on. <laughs> not um, so, for example, this is not the whole church, um, and I work a lot in student ministry, and I love students and everything about them. But they're, as students, being a student, for example, small things like time management is very, very difficult to get right, especially when you have so many different competing desires. I mean, all that really does when you see your time is expose kind of your wisdom and what you commit to. And a lot of times, as students, me being having this in my previous um, student experience, um, relating to God and relating to the church is kind of an add-on to university life. And so just as an example, time management, just looking at how you spend your time, is a radical way of thinking about what matters to me and what I think actually is wise. Even though I've been studying for two days for this exam, I can't give up an hour to, to um, come and pray with other Christians, is that really a wise decision? So if that's pointed enough, um, yeah. that's an example. That's great. It's great insight. Thank you, Peter. Please do have a seat. And Peter, be happy to catch up with any more questions at the end.